Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, you have been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Zur and the Kodan Armada. What do we do? We die. That's right, listeners. Today's movie is the 1984 sci-fi adventure, The Last Starfighter, starring Lance Guest and Catherine Mary Stewart. Directed by Nick Castle, this movie is rated PG with a running time of one hour and 41 minutes. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and you went to your local video store to rent this movie, this would be the description you would find on the back of the VHS box. What's on the box? Take it away, Jason. Can a teenager from a trailer park in the sticks find happiness as an intergalactic warrior? That's the premise of The Last Starfighter, a magical adventure starring Robert Preston, Dan O'Herlihy, and two of today's most exciting young stars, Lance Guest and Catherine Mary Stewart. It's the story of an alien scalawag, Robert Preston, who recruits a whiz kid at the video game Starfighter to fight outer space wars to save the universe. Besides appealing characters and an intriguing plot, The Last Starfighter features production designed by Ron Cobb of Alien, Star Wars, and Conan the Barbarian fame, plus computer-generated special effects that go far beyond anything ever seen on film. That's it. That's that's The Last Starfighter. What's on the box? All right. Uh, let's move on to Earliest Memories. Jason, why don't you start us off? Earliest Memories of The Last Starfighter. Well, here we go. You know, Bill, I have to say, man, this film still and will always hold a special place in my heart. And it's because I remember how it inspired my imagination. Uh, that's what I when I think of The Last Starfighter. It in, evokes a feeling of inspiration to, you know, <laughs> I was going to say fly to the stars and, and, you know, achieve all of my goals. But I mean, that's really it to explore, right. To go out there and see what's beyond where I am currently and uh, to always try to achieve more. And, you know, obviously I recall this film very much, you know, we're going to make a lot of star Wars comparisons probably throughout this podcast. I think it comes with the territory with this film. And I think the filmmakers, you know, they, they clearly knew that that was part of the, the inspiration as well behind the film. But earliest memories was that I wanted to be Alex Rogan. I wanted to be this lead character because as a youth, I mean, this is the film that really appealed to all of my senses, all of my being growing up because I loved science fiction. I loved fantasy and I loved video games. And what more can you say? The excitement of, you know, the possibility of being recruited into a fantasy world where you get to be the ultimate hero, right? Where you get to be the king of the universe, or the, the, the hero, the winner, the savior. It's all, it's all, this is the entire package for a teenage boy. That's what I think of. I mean, when I think of this movie and the earliest memories I have that after seeing it, is what how it made me feel. It just, you know, gave me the butterflies. And so I wanted to be Alex Rogan. The appeal was the fact that this film, what differs it from Star Wars, in my opinion, is that it's 
somewhat based, at least based in part in reality, because you have an actual human being, this teenage kid who is playing a video game. He lives in a trailer park and then he's whisked away on this venture. So it was something that I could relate to instead of, you know, someone on a foreign planet, you know, in a completely different universe. And then he's playing these stand-up battle, you know, space battle games. And I think of the classics, you know, like Space Invaders, Gorf, Defender, Galaga was my personal, where my expertise, like Tempest, like Berserk, even the, the Star Wars video game, Tron, Asteroid, Zaxxon. Like those are just the classics that, again, in association with this film and Besides wanting to be Alex Rogan, this, the early, one of the earliest memories was uh, the starship itself, the Gunstar. What a great design. The gunnery chair, that kind of that gyro cockpit, the joysticks, the red trigger button, the controls, uh, the Death Blossom, the awesome theme song for the, the music by Craig Safan, you know, the, is just iconic. Obviously, the computer-generated graphics, early, other earliest memories, you know, the the voice. I mean, that was the quote from the beginning of our pod t- tonight is, you know, you've been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier. That is just ingrained in my memory. Robert Preston, one of the great, uh, you know, musical theater performers, uh, you know, obviously an iconic actor. We know him from The Music Man, plays such a wonderful mentor in this part, the Obi-Wan Kenobi character, if you yeah. will. Um, I remembered, you know, even before this rewatch, the beta version of Alex Rogan and his creepy like incubation period that scared the hell out of me as a younger kid. When me too. Back the blanket and you see that freaky, creepy, you know, face kind of in the process of growth basically, or becoming Alex, Alex's younger brother and his con- the comic relief of Lewis Rogan. I remembered that that was, he's great. He's a standout in this movie. I think he's really fun. I think he's a good actor. I think he's a good young actor. Of course, I had a crush on Mags, Maggie, Maggie Gordon, the cute girlfriend. And funny enough, at that time, my growing up, my mom was such a huge diehard Days of Our Lives soap opera fan. So that was the soap opera I was raised on, basically. Okay. And sure enough, Catherine Mary Stewart plays Maggie in this film. The you know adorable girlfriend played Kayla Brady on Days of Our Lives for a few years right around this time or just before. So big fan of hers. I always remember her, uh, the trailer park sign or the, I should say trailer court, I believe is part of the actual neon sign, uh, starlight, star bright and the blinking star. I always remember that the character, Greg, the reptilian alien being the, the navigator basically aboard the gun star. Wonderful. The quote, what do we do now? We die. You know, again, what we've already uh, covered that, but I remember desperately wanting this video game to come out, to be released. The, the stand-up cabinet arcade game, and it never did. That was a supreme d- disappointment. Uh, I did not see this in the theater, Bill Bant. Uh, I saw it, I believe, on cable afterward. I think I part of the reason why I loved this movie, again, was because it was so close to the Star Wars story. And I was a Star Wars kid through and through. And... It was just so close to that. But again, like I'd mentioned earlier, it was a little bit more based in some kind. It was a little bit more grounded, literally. It was on, like, grounded on this planet, something I could uh, I could see myself in Alex Rogan. I mean, it was just all too easy. So 
those are my earliest memories, man. How about you? Well, Jason, I'm sorry you hated the movie so much. Right. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't want to pull all this information out of you and have to suffer and make you uh, watch it again. So I, I apologize for you doing should, that you to you. You should be sorry. Th- I, you know what? I appreciate it. Apology accepted, Bill. All right. Um, so my earliest memory of this movie was so the summer '84 when this movie was coming out. You know. Back then, we used to get our information on this thing called newspapers. What? What? I don't. Yeah, it was like this little thing, stack of papers and had pictures and words on it. And they put it out your front door Mm. and you pick it up and you would actually read it and learn about everything that happened the day before. Wow. Sounds very antiquated, but I'll take your word for it. Exactly. And it would be in sections like sports, entertainment, politics, business, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I remember in our Sunday paper... Um, there was an article about The Last Starfighter, and it was all about these groundbreaking special effects that they were going to do for this film. And it was really the first time a film was going to show like these full, full scenes with special effects more than anything else. And of course, right. they, you know, they excited Tron and they excited um, Star Trek II, where they had that really cool um, the Genesis project when they showed how that was going to, and that was like a sure. Good call. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was really fascinated by at that point because at that point, really, I started learning about computers in school. And we learned about the basic language, uh, which is one of the first computer languages we were taught back then. And it just did these really crappy graphics that you would do. It just, you know, it was all just like keystroke pictures that you would make. Stuff you could do with emojis now that are way better than what you could mm-hmm. do in, in basic programming. So I was fascinated by the fact that here was a movie that was going to do these crazy computer special effects. So I was really excited to see this when it came out in the theater, but unfortunately it came and went because um, I think it came out uh, in mid July. And usually I usually talk my parents into taking me to a movie when we went on vacation. Cause there was a couple of theaters uh, where we went. And by the time we went on vacation, the movie was already gone. So there was, I, I mm-hmm. didn't get to see it, but I did get to finally see it on cable. Yeah. Probably on HBO. And I think I must've yeah. watched it like every time. It came sure. on. And it was funny too, because yeah, one of my earliest memories also was the beta unit incubation scene, which kind of freaked me out. <laughs> totally. I was thinking about watching this with my kids, but my kids are like basically afraid of their own shadow. And I was like, mm-hmm. if they saw that scene, then they're not sleeping for the next two weeks. You know, it's, it's, I get the little tap on the bed at two in the morning. Dad, I had a nightmare about the, beta thing again i'm like oh, and God, it doesn't man. help that the beta is under the covers exactly oh yeah so, so that, that, yeah, so that wouldn't help image. so that that was the reason why i was like you know what i'll just i'm just gonna watch this by myself <laughs> but yeah I was, I was really a big fan of this film and just like you i was waiting forever for the video game version to come out and never because yeah. i was i was a big arcade i hung out at arcades all the time yep as a kid there was there was a one place i used to go when we went on vacation it was called the big top arcade and it was great because we'd go on vacation to be like my whole family. And one of them would like slip me a dollar or two dollars and I would run right across the street to go play video games. You know, oh, if we weren't down to the beach and stuff I've like got that. Stories as well. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I was more like the burger time. <laughs> burger time is a classic. Absolutely, man. Mr. Do, Mr. Do's Castle. But most of the games you named, I sucked at. I, I, didn't, I didn't like I didn't like those. So back then, you know, we had the Atari 2600. With those crappy ass graph blocky graphics, yeah. So to see absolutely. the graphics for this game, 
in this movie are just like, oh my God, that is just next just, level. Yeah, it, it just blew your mind. It just blew your mind because you, you did not see anything like it. And now it's commonplace. People I'm who playing made, Fortnite with my niece and nephew, and I'm I'm losing my mind. You know, <laughs> just like going, what? Because I've been out of the gaming world for so long, and now I'm returning to it just now, and it's mm-hmm. stunning. I mean, oh. like to the most of the listeners, people are probably going, "What do you? Yeah, it's Fortnite. That's how it is now." I'm going. I'm still like gobsmacked by the the whole experience. So. Oh yeah. Please continue. Yeah, I know. My kids play uh some Roblox all the time or something like that. That's what that mm-hmm. that's what they're into twenty-four-seven. But yeah, it was interesting going back to watch this because my biggest fear was how much are these graphics still gonna hold up? Because I probably have not watched this in a good fifteen to twenty years. Okay. And it's certainly one of those movies, you know, you have fond memories of and you're afraid if you go back and it just ruins it. Absolutely. And, and that happens, yeah. The graphics didn't bother me as much as I thought they were going to, except mm-hmm. when it came to like the landscaping and the meteor rock, those were, I'm like, Oh, those are terrible. Uh, but the ships, <laughs> I thought the, the ships are still okay. I mean, yeah, they're blocky or whatever, but you know, Hey, it's a different universe. Maybe they are like that. So I, I, I gave it the benefit of the doubt, but the one thing that really stood out that I was like, Oh, this is terrible. Was the creature designs. Okay. Those I thought were horrible, except for Greg. Greg was the only one that I liked still. Yeah, yeah. He holds up pretty well. Yeah, he does hold up pretty well. But the the rest of them, I was just like, oh, yeah. They're pretty rudimentary. They're, they are pretty bad. But yeah, no, I, I still enjoyed it. And um, I look forward to actually sharing this with my kids when they get a little bit older so I don't have to put up with the possible nightmares. Right. Good idea to hold off for a little while longer. A little while longer. Speaking of, of effects, that scene that we're talking about that creeped us out as kids with the beta, you know, when he pulls the covers back and he's still mid-transformation. I thought that was one of the cooler practical effects, actually. I think that holds up pretty well, the way that his face was kind of uh, sinking in and expanding. And you could see it was kind of in the middle of uh, a process, like I said, transformation. Yeah. I thought it kind of looked cool. No wonder it scared the hell out of me as a kid because it looked pretty realistic. Oh, yeah. That holds up pretty well. But speaking of the computer generated effects in this film, for me, it was interesting because when uh, Centauri, played by Robert Preston, first appears in the star car with the Rylos vanity plate, yeah. that's where I was like, oh, that's pretty cheesy. That looks like a tin or aluminum plastic ripoff of the DeLorean, which, funny enough, it's actually more based on the spinner model from the Blade Runner film. Right. And okay. I was like, okay, that's not working for me so much anymore. The the car itself, even though the design is is concept is very cool, it just looks a little blocky and clunky. And some of the effects of them driving three hundred and three miles an hour down the road and then taking off didn't work as well. But once when they get into the world, so to speak, into the universe going towards Rylos, when it became all computer generated effects, then it was all uniform. That worked for me. I thought that was pretty seamless still. Even though it's dated unto itself, at least it was more uniform. And I thought the Gunstar itself held up pretty well. I, I love the the shading on it and it, the 3D effects on it. Some of the other effects are pretty, a little bit cheesy, you know, sort that of, don't hold up as well. But the Gunstar, I thought, was very cool. I'll uh, jump a fun fact here about that car. Yeah. So I guess the car they built, it only had a Volkswagen engine that was powering it. 
Okay. So <laughs> they said they, they could barely get that thing to move. So that's why everything has to be sped up. Oh, completely. Because yes, they're like, obvious. yeah, because they're like with the with the body of that thing on there. I I was still okay with the car, to be honest. That didn't bother yeah. me too See, much. There you go. Yeah. There you go. You know, it's funny when you can tell when the film has been sped up. And one of the giveaways, there's a shot at one point where the star car either takes off, is flying down the road, and you can see the bushes, basically, like the field is waving back and forth at a really rapid rate that's just unnatural. And right. Like, okay, the film is clearly sped up because they can't control that part of it. They can't, they weren't able to go in like with CGI and change the actual scenery to match the timing of the, the shot. But overall, yeah, I, it still works for me. I go with it. This is the type of movie where it's just, I still have such an attachment to it that I allowed myself to re-engage with the fantasy instead of letting it take me out of the experience. I just allowed my inner child to kind of take over the viewing experience, if you will. Uh, so does it hold up the effects? Not really. You kind of have to go with the the premise. I just, again, yeah. I, so I still enjoy it. I just have fun with it. I just, you know what I think of it? Again, I'm just looking at it through a child's eyes. The wonderment. We talked about this a couple of times and well, especially the last podcast and actors giving that sense of wonderment, the fish out of water that we were talking about, right? Yeah. And that's Alex Rogan for sure here. You know, how would you react? Because you think about that as a kid, what, how would you be He takes it so well. He takes all this so well. Yeah, <laughs> he takes it pretty well. I don't know. He kind of freaks out at first. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't go along with it. I would freak out way sooner than oh, yeah. he did. That's for yeah. sure. That's true. Yeah, totally lose it. The other point I was going to make real quick, Bill, is that you were talking about just the technology and what we grew up with, with the Atari. We were going from... You know, arcades, and I have very fond memories of my my parents leaving my sister and I with stacks of quarters. We were very fortunate. When we would vacation in Nevada, like Lake Tahoe, we were very lucky to be able to do so. And my parents would go and gamble in the casino. They'd hand us those quarters and we'd go play in the arcade while they were playing their slot machines, you know. And there was a magical quality. And it's similar to, I guess, now if you were to, as an adult, you walk into a casino and it's the bright lights and the sounds. And the, there's something about that electric atmosphere that was the same as a child when you walked into arcade and you just see the stacks. What kind of games are they going to have? And it's kind of dimly lit and you have the buzz from the machines and the quarters going in. And there's so many different sounds and effects and smells and sometimes not, <laughs> not the most pleasant smells, but like uh, cheap pizza or soda and things like that. It just came along with that whole scene and trying to get that high score. Right. It was a whole experience. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you can relate to Tron too, right? Flynn and Tron. Yeah. Flynn's the arcade. I mean, you just, I want to be there. I want to exist in that space. There was such a childhood excitement attached to what's going to be here. Are there going to be new games, the new releases? And then it comes to the home. We have the home entertainment consoles, you know, starts with Atari, it starts with Pong and Atari 2600, what I had, and then ColecoVision and Television, all these, you know, different systems. But you think about Bill, my point being is that. How fortunate we are because we talk about 80s movies and how lucky we are. We have this nostalgic view of, of that, but how lucky we were also to grow up in a time when technology progressed exponentially because you think about technology over the span of a generation or a hundred years, but within such a short span of time, it went from the Atari to then it was Apple IIe. And I mean, look at where we are now and 
which is relatively short period of time when you look at the grand scheme of things. It's kind of crazy to think about, you know, we look at what we grew up with, these effects and where it all started between Tron and this film. These were pretty much regarded as the two films that really started introducing the broader use of CGI. Yeah. And now we have Avengers Endgame in, you know, a matter of how many years. It's not really that. It's it's kind of crazy. To think you even went from this in 84 to Jurassic Park. Yes. Which is not even a decade later. And right. how much it advanced. The, there's a perfect example, Bill. Thank you. That's the perfect example. Absolutely. So I had no idea that Grig was played by Dan O'Hearley. It's that was a total shocker to me when yeah. I saw that. But as soon as I heard the voice, I was like, oh yeah, it's definitely him. And then and then I feel bad because then I dropped the ageism thing on him because I was like, oh my God, how old was he when he played this character? He must have been right. in his sixties. I was like, why why did they get a sixty year old? And I was like, Bill, that's so wrong. <laughs> It's so wrong to think that because he was he was he was awesome in that role. He's incredible. Yeah, he's. And then I was, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, Grig, his race, maybe they live to like three hundred years old. <laughs> so he could technically be like in the same lifespan as Alex. Oh, so I'm like, so now, so I'm now, sure that's the thought so I was, I was trying they... to justify the perfect, you know, yeah. the, the casting to myself because I I felt like a douche for. Thinking they well, why I, why would they get a year <laughs> old guy and subject him to this makeup and costume to, to be in this film? Right, that's too funny. I had I, well, I'm going to confess as well, Bill. That I had no idea that it was Dan O'Hurley, and we would be remiss not to mention the fact that he was in our first podcast. I mean, yeah. he was you know he was the credited as the old man, the old OCP man. in RoboCop. Yeah, wonderful in that movie. He's got some very he's got some great lines then. Nick, you're fired. Yep. Credit to him because Grig, for the viewers, I don't know how much you were able to get out of the synopsis for this film, The Last Starfighter, but Grig is the basically Alex Rogan, our hero, his partner aboard the Gunstar, the actual Last Starfighter. He flies the ship. He's the navigator and befriends Alex, and they share a bond throughout the film because they basically go to war together. And uh, this older gentleman actor, Dan O'Hurley, he is under the makeup of this reptilian species named in this character named Greg. And he's wonderful. He brings such a warmth and they develop a great chemistry, but his delivery, his tone, and of course the iconic laugh associated. Oh yeah. I don't know how he does that. I, can't, I was like going to yeah. try to even... Do I even attempt? You might you might pass out that. and then we don't finish the podcast. Because you really have a to... wheezing Exactly. It would uh, make you black out. Breathy, yeah, like <laughs> yep. like I can't I can't do it justice, but he no. he nails it and it feels alien. Even though it's kind of like a human it has a touch of again, like a wheezing almost not coughing, but I don't even know how to describe it. But uh, it's a wonderful laugh that he does and performs as Greg. So credit to uh, Dan O'Hurley. Yeah. And another character I loved in this movie, and I was surprised watching it again. I thought he was in this way more than I thought when watching it was um, Otis played by Vernon Washington. 
Yeah. Because I was kind of like, everybody in life needs like an Otis. Someone right. who's just always positive and bubbly, always can drop the advice on you when you need it. He could just read a room too. Because there's even that, that cool scene when Maggie comes back from Silver Lake and Alex couldn't go. Right. And Otis is just kind of sitting there. Yeah. yeah. And he just, and just the way he gives the look to Maggie, like, yeah, you got to take care of this. He's, he's mm-hmm. had, he's had a bad day. I just loved him. I was just like, God, I just, everybody just needs that Otis in their neighborhood. Just that, just that guy or woman who just always is just super bubbly. You just love that person and just someone you can lean on and just, they, they just can always say the right thing to make you feel better. I loved him in this. Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. It's funny that you bring that up because Otis, I clearly remember him in this movie and he does not have a large role at all. It's no. a very small role, but he's very memorable. Exactly. And you think you go, well, why is that? Why do I still remember him? Even as a kid, I, re- I can see him when you think of all the characters that fill out the trailer park, right? Obviously, Alex Rogan's mom, his little brother. But Otis is a big part of that, the memory of that place, of that setting. And I think what really resonated for me this time around was that scene that happens right before Maggie returns from Silver Lake, because there's a nice moment that Otis has with Alex while he's playing the video game. And Alex says, he basically is telling Otis, I don't enjoy my existence here in this trailer park. I don't want to live here forever. And Otis kind of has that he drops a little wisdom on and says, look, just be patient. Your time will come. The important thing is, is that when it does, you have to grab hold of it with both hands. You have to take that opportunity. And it's a great moment that's accentuated by Lance Guest's performance as Alex, because Lance Guest, as Alex, he gives an extended stare and the camera holds on him. It's a really very deliberate like hold on Alex as he gives him a look. Alex gives Otis this look like, yeah, like you're right. Like as in he that he knows that moment is going to arrive. And obviously it does shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. It's a nice moment. Yeah. Yeah. I just think he was almost like the whole he was almost like the spokesperson for the community too, because the scene right. where Alex is playing the game and he's gonna bust the record and he, he gets everyone in the trailer park to come. Oh, I love it. I have the a whole game. yeah, comment. Yeah. But, I was going to make a brief comment about that because of the fact that obviously not a whole lot going on at the Starlight Starbright trailer court when a kid breaking the all-time record on a video game is the highlight for everybody in the entire community. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. So funny. It's absolutely hilarious. And you know what, Bill? It works. They work. It's a credit to all the actors in that scene. Exactly. Group. It doesn't come off as cheesy at all. I, I still thought it was kind of cool. And I love it. I want to be there with them. They make me want to cheer too. It gets me excited. It got me excited. I still watch it. I'm going, hell yeah, Alex, go do it. You could do it. You know, like it, they're, they're so enthusiastic. It's great. Because I remember as a kid, um, my parents and I, we went to Atlantic City and it was right when uh, the Dragon's Lair game came out. Oh, I can't believe you brought that. I was thinking about that game for some reason all day today. Oh. That's one of those games, man. Dragon Slayer. Hell yeah. The animated. Yeah. And they used to have on one of the piers an arcade and the arcade had had this big screen in front of it. And they were showing people that were playing Dragon Slayer. And someone had gotten to the the end scene where you're supposed to rescue Daphne from the drag. 
And Jason, I swear to God, there must have been 75 people watching this guy play. Sure. So I was like, this totally makes sense. It, it totally works because that's what people would do. I mean, we talk about the arcade. There's an individuality to it, but there's also a community to it, too, because if there's a new game, everyone huddles around to watch someone play it. You nailed it. Nailed it. The arcade experience. And I love the fact is because usually every time you watch movies and video games, they always have that crappy Pac-Man Atari 2600 Pac-Man music going on, or you can tell the way that they're playing. It's like, they're not playing the game, but watching right. Lance Guest play, I'm like, he looked like he was actually playing Starfighter, oh, yeah. even though yeah. he was looking at a, a screen of flashing lights. I totally believe it. I'm like, yeah, he's, he, he looks like he's playing this game. So it, it sold me. Completely. And that's a really good point. There's a little subtlety to that actually. And because we talk about the arcade experience now in this scenario, this is the standalone one stand-up arcade game that's at this remote trailer park. However, you still get a sense of that community because we talk about the ar- arcade experience where you usually would go with friends, right? Uh, you go with friends, you hang out, but then you would also be a spectator. So you would watch somebody play the game and you would root for them and people would gather around other people. It reminded me of immediately too, right now, which is a great call, is uh, season two of Stranger Things. That's the opening is they're at an arcade and it's like, yeah, and they nail it because that's what you, you did. Yeah. And in this film, even though there's only one arcade game, I love there's two subtle moments that happen that just bring me right back is when his younger brother, Lewis, gets up on a stool so he can yes. see the screen and he's leaning in because he wants to watch the action. And Alex has to say, move your head. You move your head because he gets in the way because uh-huh. that would happen. People oh, yeah. would lean in to the cabinet and try to get and tell you what to do. You got to go here, go there, go there, do this. That's yes. like all the time. That's just a subtle thing. So they nailed that. And one of my other favorite solo moments is when, because Alex, we get the feeling they, they really establish this is that he spends a great deal of his time playing this game, clearly, obviously. Yeah. And he, you know, starts the game and he has to listen to the intro every time he starts the game. And he does the goes, he goes, yeah, yeah, like speed it up. Yep. And that's something we still have to do with it today. Exactly. I swear to God, I'm, I turn on, I just got into Fortnite, like I mentioned. And mm-hmm. I'm connecting through Wi-Fi on a place that, you know, and it's got to load. It's got to connect. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we got to go to, you know, that's part of the, the video game culture is you've got to wait for the game to load or you have to wait to get through the introduction scene narrative. And uh, they get that. I'm like, that's so funny. That's how that's exact. That's me. Yeah. There, there's a game I play now. It's called Rocket League and it's basically soccer oh, sure. in, in cars. Yeah, yeah. Great game. And yeah. my, my son will be watching, my son's seven and he'll be watching me and like, I'll go to hit the ball and I'll, I'll miss. And my son, like dad, dad, you missed dad, dad. Right. The same thing like Lewis, dad, the ball's over, go over there, go hit it, hit it in the goal, pass it. Pass it. And it just made me laugh watching the movie. Cause I'm like, yeah, Lewis is my son right now. What he does to me when I'm playing games. Oh my God. When I was visiting my niece and nephew and they were trying to teach me how to play Fortnite. I, they, I have to give them credit because they're 12 years old and 10 years old. And at first they were very patient, but on a PlayStation controller, as all of many of you know, out there, there are many buttons Yes, and a lot of different controls. It's not just, you know, uh, direction and fire. It's, you can do multiple actions. So they're trying to tell me, and then they finally started growing impatient. They would take turns teaching me. So one of them would get grow impatient and be like, tell the other one, Talon, it's your turn. I can't, you know, basically I can't deal with this anymore. 
I, I just want to play. And then the other one, he'd be like, Rio, Rio, it's your turn. I, he's not doing it right. <laughs> yeah. And then she would like my Rio, my niece would just yell at me and be like, after, you know, you kill an enemy or something, she'd be like, now you got to dance, dance, dance. And then Talon would be yelling, build, you have to build, build, move, aim, duck, fire, shoot, run, get down. Get down. I'm like, can you get, just give me a second, man. <laughs> and so now I insist on being by myself in order to learn how to play. Yeah. I mean, I, we, I we just started it. with one little red button and a, and a stick. You know, yep. that's how that we started. And now it's, now there's, well, 12 buttons at least. Yeah. Play okay. a game, so it's awesome. Don't oh, be yeah. wrong. It's it just takes a little bit longer for us now, right? To adapt, yeah. And that was the same for our parents. Oh yeah, when they tried to play the games that we grew up on, you mm-hmm. know, it's like it's in these kids' genes now. They were genetically programmed to understand it. It's just exactly a generational thing. It always will be. All right, so let's uh, move on to and we, we mentioned them already a little bit. Some of our uh, favorite scenes or, or moments in the film. Um, Jason, do you have anything? So that scene, the beating the Starfighter game, or at least that—that that was another maybe question that I have. Is like, does he actually beat the game, or he just gets the high score? I mean, we think he wins because he does blow up the command ship of the Kodan Armada, but. That seems it's a fun scene. It's exhilarating to see the community get so behind him to get him to get that high score. So that's the first scene I have. And I even find it cute when him and Maggie are, are sitting there on the bench afterwards and the neighbors are going to bed. And they're like, just like, Alex, good job. They're still congratulating him. <laughs> exactly. Like he just won the big game for the entire town. Exactly. Hilarious and amazing. Yeah. Way to be, Alex. Yep. You know, way to go, Alex. Way to go. You know, <laughs> congratulations. Yeah. Like he's like, yeah, thanks. And there he is, like just. And then even life. even the way he tells his mom about oh, it. Oh, so proud. He's so proud of himself. Yeah. And just another note on that too. Speaking of of Maggie or Mags, I was going to ask you this later, and maybe maybe uh, we'll cover this again. Is is Maggie the best girlfriend ever? Because I've never had a girlfriend that cheered me on or supported me so much in order to win a video game. I just think she plans one on him. I know. I uh, kind of thought that too. It's all like, about, she is just there for him and really wants him to win that game. And just is all that's, she's so excited for him. And that, I, I, that's just never happened for me. And maybe she's still out there, Bill. I, I know. I mean, I'm surprised I never had that on my, my finding the perfect woman checklist, you know, <laughs> Exactly. Applauds my video game accomplishments. Yeah, I was yeah. proud of me when That's, I finally yeah. you know win the video game. And just, you know, please, just a little little encouragement, photo confidence, something. How uh, do you have a, a scene that uh um yeah, one of my favorite scenes is the uh introduction of uh Centauri. Yeah, um I just I have love that too. moment. Absolutely. Uh, who's played by uh Robert Preston, who right away you know he it's basically he's doing the music man in space and i and i i have to confess i have not seen music man all the way through i've seen bits and pieces of it I but i've never seen so long I've, yeah. I've never seen it from uh beginning to end and i i need to do that um especially watching this again um just the whole fast talking way oh yeah he's moving and he somehow talks alex into getting the car but it's not telling him what he's getting in the car for he was just great. I can't believe and he just had so much energy and I can't believe 
that he would pass away four years later after making this film. Yeah. Yeah. Because just the whole film, he just has so much energy. He just, when he comes on the screen, he just has just an amazing presence. You know, right away you think a music man. And then I had to be like, all right, what else have I seen him in? And I know I've seen other movies. And then I was like, I know he's been in some Blake Edwards movies. But what Blake Edwards movies was he in? But he is so identified as the music man. Oh, yeah. Iconic. Iconic performance. But yeah, his performance in this is great, too. And unfortunately, it was his last uh, film role. Right. Last theatrical film. Yeah. Great casting as as Centauri is just like that wheeler dealer. Like he's he's trying to help out, but he's really out for himself. But he, as in the synopsis, the what's on the box, he's the scalawag. But if it wasn't from him, Rylos would have been doomed. So he, he was doing the right thing. That is one of my favorite quotes from the film, which I'll get to later, I think, which encapsulates his character. It's a wonderful quote. And he, you nailed it, man. Go ahead. You, what else? Yeah. And he just, and think of it. He just had a great idea. Let me make these video games, throw them out throughout this planet Earth and see if someone's got what it takes to be a starfighter. That, that's a pretty ingenious idea. To, As a method of recruitment. Yeah, exactly. I, I thought it was pretty good. A great idea. I had that on my list. I call it, it's because we're talking about moments and scenes. And I just kind of, I call it the calling Centauri's arrival and the recruitment. And it just all, I put it all together. It's just great 10 minute sequence. Yeah, exactly. The moment after, you know, so Alex has beaten the game. He's beaten Starfighter. He's won the game. The whole town is behind him. They've cheered him on. It's like the greatest accomplishment of his life, I guess to this point, but he has found out that the loan has fallen through. He's not getting the loan to go to college. He's going to get stuck. Uh, they kind of give the city colleges a bad name in this movie. Yeah. There's some very good city colleges out there. And I'm going to give it a little shout out to CLC college of Lake County right now, <laughs> but he's disappointed. He had some hopes and dreams that in this moment are shattered. And he, I love the setting here. This is the poster. If I, I wish I could have this image printed as a poster for my, my idea of the last starfighters when he's at night coming up the hillside to the store that's at the top of the hill next to the the neon sign the starlight starbright sign and he right. kind of arises up this hill and it's backlit there's light shining up from beneath and he walks up the hill crumples up the piece of paper that says he didn't get flown he throws it at the sign and then he is standing and you see the video game in the distance up against the store. You have the neon sign in the foreground, which he is standing underneath and he's looking up at the stars and we see a shooting star across the screen. I don't think I put one and one together back then, but I did now that that was probably Centauri's ship. I didn't even think about that. No, I just thought it was more symbolic. That totally makes sense. I like that. I like that interpretation. It totally works. Because first of all, the, the setting is just awesome. Because here he is. That's that's Luke Skywalker on Tatooine, looking at the twin suns, right? Oh yeah, dreaming, looking off to the you know yearning for adventure. It's what you know the calling, right? And that's what he's feeling. And that's when the video game starts to kind of go on the fritz. It's mm-hmm. kind of speaking to him in a way, like yeah, you, you know, you're being recruited, and that's when. As you just said, now Centauri does appear for the first time. And Robert Cresson, you nailed it, Bill. A force to be reckoned with. He's got musical theater written all over him. He's so big and bombastic, and he brings this enthusiasm. And they had actually pretty much written the part for him. 
they wanted him, I think, from the get. And he just exudes such a great, wonderful warmth. He takes over. He takes over. And you can't keep your eyes off of him. He's so much fun. And then he takes, as Centauri, he's the one recruiting. He, Like you said, what a great idea, sending all the video games. But yeah, great way to recruit. So he recruits Alex, gets him to hop into his star car, and he takes him off to Rylos. And then we have the whole recruitment scene. And you get to see some kind of cheesy aliens, not so great creature design maybe, but yeah. it's still the set is cool where he's, you know, kind of yeah, all it's not the sets are pretty cool. he, he shows up and uh, it's the Rylan, uh, Rylan star base. I'm like, I don't know if it's the moon of Rylos exactly where the star base is or if it's on Rylos, but it's the star base and he's walking around and he gets a translator so he can understand all the alien languages. I thought that was a cool little touch and then sits down and, the elder gets up and does a speech. But so I, I kind of combine that, the you know, one favorite scene of mine. And what else do you have? The DB, the death blossom scene. That was always an exciting one for me when uh, that finally gets revealed. Yes. Um, because you're waiting for it. There's some foreshadowing there, uh, you know, early on when Alex is sitting in the cockpit and Greg and he are going through the controls, going over the all the controls and the display, the heads up display, all very cool stuff, by the way. I, still to me, I, I just want to sit in that cockpit and like spin around. Just looks awesome. Although I probably get really nauseous, but it still looks pretty amazing. Then of course he wants, he's like, well, what does this do? He's like, oh, don't touch that. That's the death blossom. You only you know save that for emergencies, basically. So you're always, you're, you know, it's coming. You're anticipating it. And it's a great payoff. I thought there's some strategy in using it and the way that they do use it. Towards the end, it's just very cool how the, the ship just goes into like the spastic, like spinning around. And Yeah. And, and fun fact on that scene is they did have to put him through the paces with that all that spinning and stuff because, of course, mm. they didn't have the technology back then. So they, yeah, they had a gyroscope thing that they had to spin around like he was in Death Blossom. So I'm sure after take two or three, that did not feel pretty good. Yeah, no kidding. I, I would have threw up now after take one. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you have anything else? Just the Grig and Alex conversations. Good call. In the Gunstar. Sure. I mean, they were just great. They're just all because they're, they're just little moments peppered throughout. The first one when <laughs> they're about to take off and Alex is like, so where's the other starfighters? <laughs> He's like, That's oh, no, they, yeah. No, they're, they, they all died in the hangar blowing up. He's like, wait, what do you mean? So Alex is always like a minute behind everything else mm-hmm. that is going on. And it's, yeah. it's just kind of hilarious how it just works off. But Greg is just so, and he's not worried at all. And Alex, like most of us, would be uh, crapping our pants because it's like, okay, wait, one ship against the whole armada? Yeah, that, that ain't going to happen. It'll be a slaughter. Yeah, exactly. That's the spirit. <laughs> that's, no, my slaughter. <laughs> yeah, that's just great. The whole thing when they're trying to figure out the plan. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll figure out something by the time we get to the frontier. And then right away, you're just, beep, 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 beep. What's, what's that? Yeah. The frontier. <laughs> it's just like, it's just, it's just great. Just little moments between two of them. It's just awesome. And Yeah, that's a good call. So, yeah, so those are little scenes. Yeah, you love all those scenes between the two of them. Dialogue's fantastic. Yes. I agree, man. My, my last scene is the whole, the finale. Uh, I love this as a kid because... I think often you would think you'd see a movie and, you know, he saves the day. But in this particular film, Alex Rogan has a real choice to make. Uh, he has a, he's presented with a very, very hard choice. And now that he has become the hero of Rylos, 
not just Rylos, but the universe in this instance, they're looking for to him to be their leader now or to rebuild the, the legion. And it's either that or the only other option is to go back to the trailer park and live out his life there, most likely, with Maggie. So he actually, we get an extended scene at the very end where he returns home in the Gunstar with Greg and has a whole discussion with basically Maggie, the community, his mom. And it's, it's cool. I, I just like that scene a lot. It provides a lot of resolution and, and some interesting questions. Like it makes you think, well, what would I do in his shoes? Which is funny because, I mean, on our last podcast, we did Splash and it was this, we had the same situation come up. I'm glad you brought that up. Tom Hanks Absolutely. had the choice of, was he going to jump in the water? with madison or was he going to stay and we both said stay where in this instance i would have went i actually would have went because i i feel like there is a chance for me to come back correct and even though it's briefly to see my folks because you know hey we got the we can jam their signal and i you know i could do a quick dinner and then just get back on their ship and go i totally agree that was it was funny that in retrospect now one of the problems i had with the end of splash and i didn't bring it up in our podcast but the fact that he tom hanks leaves everything behind for Madison for the, you know, the mermaid, he doesn't even say goodbye to his brother, Freddie. He doesn't say goodbye to anybody. No. He's, he's just like, I'm out, man. I'm out. Yeah. And like, that's it. Like, can you imagine like just disappearing? He yeah. ghosts everybody. Like, it's like, okay. All right. You know, I thought about that later. I'm like, that's pretty hard. That's a pretty harsh for in this scenario, Alex has the option of coming back. Obviously so that makes a big difference. But this is still a pretty big move. He's not just, like I think Maggie says, like he's not just moving to the city. He's moving solar systems away and wants her to come with him. She has been a hard choice to make in a very brief amount of time. But it's all cool because Greg comes down from the Gunstar. I love the, like, that the elevator shaft. Like That's just a cool, again, yeah. design, how they kind of exit the ship, come out, and they're all freaked out. Absolutely hilarious that granny gordon is standing there with a shotgun pointed <laughs> yes. at greg no I'm not, grant granny put the shot you can put the shotgun down this is greg he's my friend oh my god and then you have mrs boone standing there licking her lips like she's she just she wants greg she's immediately she's hot and heavy for greg and i'm what, what's going on here this is very awkward and strange but that whole scene is a lot of fun very romantic very idealistic because obviously maggie then uh, decides at the last minute to go with him. She gets the okay from Granny, and she feels good about it. So she hops on the little elevator thing with Alex, and they're going to go off into space together. I did feel a little bit for Maggie, though, because I was like, she didn't have pack. You know, I'm sure she needed her Aquanet. Because, I mean, you look some of those Rylands. Most of them have these weird haircuts and balls. So I'm like, where's she going to get her hair done? Yeah, Maggie would be a big deal there with that yeah. hair. <laughs> she would be a big deal. That would be funny if, though, in order to blend in, if she did have to shave her head, but keep like the hair on the sides of her head still, <laughs> yes. just like the Rylands have their styling, hairstyle. Poor Maggie. You know, there's another scene I do want to point out because I thought it was actually yeah. pretty well done. Was the first when Alex comes back the first time because he's like, I don't want to do this, and then he meets the Beta Unit, and they have that scene in the bedroom in the trailer park. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought they did that scene pretty well because usually when you're you have actor facing actor, there's always that horrible oh, yeah. sight line where you can right. tell they're not looking at themselves. 
And I was yeah. really watching it this time. And I'm like, they actually did a pretty good job of matching that. Totally agree. Yeah, I thought that was really good for um, kudos. And then just the whole comedy thing with Lewis kind of waking up and how they just can't make him go back to sleep. And then I was figuring out how the hell the 10-year-old pulled us so many Playboy magazines. Oh, my God. So funny. Because first yeah. I thought they were Alex's and he was stealing them. And then I'm like, no, he's getting them on his own somehow. Damn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I thought they were Alex's too. Uh, he's pretty resourceful. Yes. Kid, 10-year-old. Anything else with uh, favorite moments or scenes before we move on? That's it. Man. All right. Uh, moving on. Swiss cheese. Yes, this is the Swiss cheese segment. Because, Bill, although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes. What do you have for some Swiss cheese, Jason? Here's a hole I have or an issue I have is once uh, Alex has been recruited by Centauri and Centauri takes him to Rylos and uh, the Ryland Starbase, And we meet some aliens and we get the speech from the elder. And I, I forget the character's name, but all of a sudden our villain, our antagonist appears for the first time in the form of a hologram, his giant head is a hologram. That's yes, Zur. Zur, yes. Zur. And apparently, I don't know, Bill, I'm not, maybe I'm, I just don't have a lot of familiarity with holograms, but are holograms windy? Do they produce wind? I didn't uh, think so. Yeah, there was standing there, and as soon as the hologram shows up, the wind is like blowing his hair back, and it's as if the, the hologram itself has some sort of physical presence uh, or can control the elements. Yeah, and pushing. Thinking, oh, maybe away. maybe it's just the evil holograms that can do that. Yes, and I, and I liked how the, the hologram could kind of see everything that was going on. It was kind of cool. <laughs> He's looking around the room. Yeah, it was he like, does it like a three sixty. I was like, like, I thought holograms were just a projection. It's a it's a, it's like a one way transmission. So like, well, you know what? It's a different universe. So I guess different technology. They play by different rules, man. Yes. But speaking of technology, I was surprised that on Rylos they um, they have C four. I was kind of surprised by oh, that. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, they have C four on Rylos. I didn't I didn't know. And with that C four, they little explosion totally knocks out the the base. What what, what kind of base is that? That a little bomb knock out one control panel, and now they have no weapon systems. Well, to I think. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, just took that one. Yeah, that I, I was like, out the weapon system, and then yes, then the meteor uh, weapons, whatever the meteors blow yeah. up the the actual base. But yeah, yeah, little little C four. You know, it's like couldn't uh, they have a cooler that, looking bomb, like a cool <laughs> anything that exactly futuristic or foreign, but not uh, just a, like a, a brick of C four. A brick of yeah, yeah. That's immediately like it. It really is the universal. C4 thing, just a little square brick of clay or what looks like pl- like gray colored Play-Doh with some sort of box and a blinking light on it. And that's your C4. You know, that's what it is. Yeah. Maybe the Rylands had clearly visited Earth at one point and that was their one takeaway. That's true. C4. That's you true. Know. What can we learn from Earthlings? Oh, C4. That sounds cool. So that <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty good. So here's another one issue I had is once the... The Zanzadan is am oh, I saying that right? Thank uh, you. That's what, I, that's what I was going to go to. The Zandozans. The assassin. The Zanzan. And the Zandozans have to be the Zandozan. stupidest. Zandozan. Thank you. I knew I was saying it right. Zandozan. They're the stupidest alien assassins ever. I I would rather have Greedo than a Zandozan. Well, it's funny you say that. I was going to say it's like a poor man's like threes from 
the creature from uh, Jabba the Hutt's three eyes. You remember the, yeah. the three eyes? Yes. But he only has two eyes in this. I mean, all right, let's just break down both of the Zando Zans. The first one, okay, so he shows up at the um, Starlight Star Bright. Right, and, and I call him the Lee Van Cleef uh, version because he comes in human form. Right. And the, whomever that actor was, and I apologize, I don't know his name offhand, he looks like, just at a glance, just reminded me of Lee Van Cleef from the Spaghetti <laughs> Westerns. But then all of a sudden, when he looks at the Starfighter video game, the Star For- this is where my main hole came in in this particular scene, is when this, the Starfighter video game emits some sort of energy ray that consumes his face and peels back his human identity to reveal the Zandazan. Is that, uh, sorry, I'm not saying this right. What's the damn? Zandazan, you got it right. Okay, Zandazan, his true form. Yeah, I didn't understand you know, why the video game could talking do that. About. Yeah, I don't understand why. How did the video why. game know that he was an assassin? Like the video game had some sort of sentient ability to recognize that this was an evil assassin and that he was undercover as a human and then zaps him with a ray that turns him back to his original Zandazan. Yeah, even listening to the commentary and Nick Castle tries to explain it, but it still didn't make any sense to me. Oh, Okay. Because because it because it's made with wireless technology and it has like the home and beacon built in there too, but I still understand uh, why would that be able yeah, to be stretch. able to why would that be able to pick out assassins? Why would it even know to do that? So yeah, that's a bit of a stretch. But yeah, like, like I said, the Zandazans they're they're horrible assassins because you like I said we had the first one that that shows up and then Alex is standing on the video game and it drools on him, so it gives it, it gives himself away right away. Right. And then they're not very capable assassins. Right. And of course, talented. poor shot as always. Surprise, surprise. And then Alex ducks behind the um, trailer hitch. And then the assassin gives himself away by knocking the pebbles. You would think you would think after the first time you would be more careful the second time. But no, you give yourself away again by letting Alex. Yeah. <laughs> by letting Alex know that you're right on top of him and you kick stuff down on him. I was like, right. oh, my God. How you're supposed to be stealth? Oh yeah, oh it's uh, yeah, it's terrible. He, the Zandazan is they're terrible assassins. Yeah. So he uh, got what he deserved, and then <laughs> no sympathy for the Zandazan. No, and then and then the second one. Okay, the second one's smart enough to try to disguise himself as a cop, right? And somehow figures out the who he thinks is Alex is at Silver Lake, at Silver Lake right. with Maggie. Very funny scene. Yeah, so then he shoots the beta unit, right. but realizes it's a robot, and then runs. Which is, yeah, totally gives himself away by shooting. what He already knows it's not Alex, but decides to shoot him anyway, which what? gives away his presence. And Why don't you finish him off first? Yeah, yeah, good point. What's going to stop you? Finish him off and then go back to the ship and work. <laughs> what happened? Why, why would you? Call. Why would just? Why are you wound him and walk away? Finish the job. Right. It doesn't yeah. matter. You know he's not Alex, but you would think he could then warn. Oh, absolutely. So that was. I was like, you are I, a stupid assassin. Right. I would never hire a Zandozan. Never. I don't think they get hired from here on out. I think that's that's pretty much the end of. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure that blew their whole rep after this. Yeah, because Zur's got to rethink his whole strategy. 
Yeah, you know, I'm totally assassins, employing assassins. You got to look to another race. I'm gonna go. Yeah, go get the Rodans and there you uh, go. Have them do it. That's funny because I was gonna bring up the Walrus Man later on uh, <laughs> in comparison to the Zandazan. You'll you probably Star Wars fans probably know where I'm going with this, uh, but I'll bring it up with my yeah. Star Wars uh, comparisons later. Right. So we have issues with the Zandazan. Yes, for sure. Uh, here's a, a funny, I don't know if it's really whole, just kind of a funny issue I had. I noticed right away is the Kodan Armada's command ship. The On the bridge, the control panel to me is just one giant Simon Says concert. <laughs> yes. Absolutely hilarious. It's so funny because I think when I, when I watch Star Wars, for instance, you see a lot of consoles, whether it be on the Falcon, Death Star, name your ship name your location setting, whatever, With a, there's a lot of blinking lights and you're always like, what does that button do? What does this button do? But some of them, they do have look like they have some functionality, right? Yes. They're not, they, they kind of look like they have some sort of purpose. They are mechanically constructed in a way where it's like, oh, that's a lever. That's going to be the thruster or whatever it might be. But in this case on the console, it's just these large, triangles and that's it and they're different colors it's like well could have could have added a little flavor a little more flavor or flair here mixed it up a little bit it was just kind of funny because every time they're like you know fire the meteor gun it's like simon says fire the meteor gun because yeah. he presses the giant button so i just thought that was funny oh and just just even follow up just the codan army in general mm-hmm. i'm rightless i'm like i'm not worried about these guys at all they it reminded me of the black hole where completely the, absolutely yeah, the same talk i i feel like i right. could oh, i could totally outrun these guys in a second i'm like i i wouldn't be worried I, i'm like i'll be a starfighter if, if these are the people i got to take on uh, not a problem I'll, I'll i'll take on them I think one general hole we can point out here, because I was already making the Star Wars comps here, but, uh, you know, we can say that this is not an entirely original film, right? I mean, this film is stealing from a lot of different other films. It's just a big kind of amalgamation or whatever, compile or a compilation of different movies in different ways. But I still find it extremely entertaining. I like the way they did it, but they are stealing from, at least they're stealing from what I consider pretty good. Even when you're looking at the cockpit of their ships, I'm like, I'm I'm not intimidated by these fighters at all. I was like, Alex can take these guys out. I'm not worried about this. They they just seem lame. They have no idea what the hell they're doing. I do love when at one point you're talking about the, uh, because we have Lord Krill, who is the commander of the Kodan. He was intimidating. He was intimidating. Exactly. He was awesome. Dan Mason, I believe, is the actor's name. He's great. And he's the one that delivers the iconic line, in my opinion, iconic line, we die. And I love his delivery throughout. And he can see just fine. But apparently the other centurions or whatever, the other Kodan that are just the other soldiers have issues with their eyes. Because when Zur and his scepter knocks off the, the whatever goggles they're wearing, oh yeah, the one guy, the one... Kodan falls down and his eyes are popping out of his head and he's freaking the fuck out. And I'm like, what's wrong with his eyes? Why can the other Kodan see just fine? Like the general, or I'm sorry, the commander, Lord Krill mm-hmm. and his right-hand man, they can see just fine. Why are they? I, I was 
I mean, I I could see down. like Lord Krill coming home to Lady Krill and just being like, <laughs> "Oh my god, I'm surrounded by." It's almost like Dark Helmet and Spaceballs. Like I'm surrounded by assholes. These guys can't do shit. <laughs> There's no way we're gonna beat Rylos. I need another army. Right. <laughs> and she's just like, "Don't worry about it, dear. Everything will work uh, out." Right. Oh. And I really do like Lord Krill's eyepiece. Oh, yeah. Because that is part of the iconic delivery of the We Die line is when that I, because he does it, he uses it a few times in the film. It's like, what, what do you I think wanna, it does? It, I don't know. I have to believe that that piece has some sort of heads up display that he sees or it, it enhances someone. He's looking at the console in front of him, which is like whatever war right. time, you know, planning strategy computer graphics or something that he can see something through. But I would, yeah, I want to know what he sees. Uh, it's kind of like, it. it's kind of cool that you don't though, because it leaves it up to your imagination. Oh, yeah. And it just, you know what it reminded me? It was kind of like of Boba Fett because Boba Fett had a similar thing too mm-hmm. with like an intent, like on his, on his helmet that could lower down that he could like a targeting computer that he could basically look through or infrared or whatever capabilities it had. It enhanced his vision somehow. Uh, but we never knew. We never actually saw his POV, not until the Mandalorian, which is right. cool that we do finally get to see it. But uh, in this case, it's kind of something similar with uh, Lord Krill. That yeah. eyepiece was very cool. That it could, but it, uh, the, yeah, the rest of the Conan army looked like Lord Krill. I would be worried. I'm like, they don't have a shot. But right. when, you, when you look at the rest of them, you're like, please, cake, yeah. cake. <laughs> not very intuitive. No, did you? I've got only a couple other uh, issues and or holes. I only got one other. All right. I'm not sure if you knew this before. So Alex's mother is a waitress at a diner. Correct. But they're also the manager of the park. I, yeah. So I don't know if, is Alex like the local maintenance guy? Is he getting a little, is he getting paid for that? Yeah, what's the what's the whole dynamics? I'm like, wouldn't she get some like free rent? Maybe it's like, why does she have to work this other job, like twenty four seven? So technically, Alex is kind of the manager because they never they never do talk about the dad. I mean, we see a picture of right. Him. We don't know what happened to the dad. Exactly. Like, did the dad run off with their money? That's why they're living there. Yeah, and I that's don't know. why she's got a double job. But I, I I don't think I ever really caught on that they were the managers of that park. And then it was like, wait, so why is the mom always having to run off to do another job? I'm like, why didn't she just work up at the store? Right. She still are there on the premises. Where was she going? That's what I was confused about is that there was an actual cafe slash store at the top of the hill right there. That was technically part of the trailer court. Mm -hmm. And, but she was actually working at a diner at a different location. That's the impression I had. Yeah. Right. So was Otis the only one working the store then? I assumed like he was the one kind of running the store, but he also seems to be a handyman too. Cause he's fixing somebody's antenna at some point. Right. And Alex is it's the beta version, but still it's supposed to be like Alex is supposed to be helping him. So I don't know exactly who's got what role within this community. I did not pick up on the fact that Alex's mother was supposed to be the manager. I, I only caught it the second time I watched it. Because when Alex had run up the stairs, there's a because I was always like, why is why is Alex the one that's always running around having to fix everything? That like, right. what, yeah. Why does he have to do that? He lives there like everyone else. He could just say, I don't feel like doing it. But then he he runs up the side of the house, and you literally see manager on the side 
of their trailer. Oh, gosh, so that's yeah. when I was kind of like, well, then who's the mom's has to be the manager then if they're living in there. So why right. is the mom always running off to do other work? I mean, yeah, I'm sure it's not paying a ton of money, but it should be enough money to suffice. It's th- there's a couple things that are unclear there. Yeah, that's a good. You raise a good point, man. That's a good like. Yeah, I want I want to know. And then yeah. obviously he doesn't seem mad at his dad because he has the picture, and he doesn't seem like upset about it. So I'm like, yeah, you know, dad passed. Did dad run off? I want to know. I want to know what happened to the dad. Well, see, that's you know stuff that I think could be explained in either a prequel or a sequel. We may have to talk about that a little bit. All right. Uh, but speaking of the photos, because both Grig and Alex. They share photos. Yes. Right? So we do. And uh, we ha- Greg shows a photo of his wife and his children. And here's a little fun fact is that Dan O'Hurley, who plays the role of Greg, also played his own wife. <laughs> that was awesome. So in the photos, that's also him as the wife. And it was kind of cool, though, because they're like, yeah, that's basically a cell phone size. And that's what everyone does anyway. You just slice, 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 except it does yeah. it by itself. But yeah, I was like, all right, they were ahead of the game on the technology there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Very cool stuff. I have just go. Okay. So I've got another hole here. I've always had this issue. I think even since I was a kid watching this, I have an issue with the scale because after the famous line, what do we do now? We die. The, ship the uh codan command ship crashes into the moon yes and there's an issue with the scale here because we're talking about a a moon being a small planet or large planet depending on what moon you're talking about but either way it's a freaking moon right yes and the the size of the command ship when it actually hits the moon and explodes is probably one eighth or i don't know a seventh of the size of the moon, which is impossible because that means that the command ship itself would be like almost the size of a planet unto itself. Like there's no, if a, 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 an, a giant, like an enormous, like star destroyer to make another star Wars reference were to crash into a planet, you'd still be entering atmosphere and you would obviously create an enormous meteor type crater. But, yeah, because that moon because the moon has to the moon has to be big enough to have a gravitational pull. Like, right, I'm getting a little science here for everybody. So the moon has to be yeah, big they enough. They actually bring that. They bring that up. That's one of the reasons why it crashes into the moon. They say exactly the gravitational pull. Yeah. So it can't be a small moon. It's got to be a big moon. And you right. know the ship Could isn't be. that big because there is scale with the the starfighter ship. Right. So yeah, it's it's yeah that's totally disproportionate. Yeah, it's completely off. That's yeah, I, I didn't think of that. I I just thought when I saw the explosion, I'm just like, I'm surprised George Lucas wasn't calling his lawyers. Like they copied my explosion. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And then you know, I ha- I had this issue, but then I I kind of resolved itself. I think okay. at the very end during the finale, uh, I was wondering how Mags Maggie was going to explain to Jack Blake that his truck exploded while taking out an alien assassin's ship. Oh yeah, because. Uh, Mags and Beta Alex Steele, uh, Jack Blake. I love that name. He's got two first names. Yes. Jack Blake. They steal Jack Blake's truck to go after the Zanzadan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't get the fucking Zan. 
Zando. What do I keep I, saying? Zanzadan? I'm so happy you're the one that screwed up a name for once. I know. Zandozan. Zandozan. I don't know why I can't get that right. The Zandozan, they go after him. Because you secretly want to do a podcast on Xanadu. So that's why you I keep so. like subliminally thrown. It was brought that. up in another podcast. I was listening. I'm like, oh, that's such a terrible movie. <laughs> Zandozan. So they <laughs> Beta Alex and Maggie Zandos steal this kid's Zandos. truck. <laughs> and they, uh, Mags jumps from the truck and Beta Alex goes on a little uh, kamikaze mission and, and crashes the truck into the Zandozan's ship to kill the Zandozan and disrupt the signal that the Zandozan is sending back to the Kodan command ship alerting them that the last starfighter is alive. So poor Jack Blake is out of a truck. And uh, I was like, man, how's Maggie going to explain this one to him? But he, she doesn't have to because she ends up just taking off with Alex at the end. Yeah. But either way, I think once Alex shows up in the Gunstar, it would probably make more sense if she actually said, oh, yeah, we used your truck to kill an alien inside of his ship he probably would buy it at this point, seeing as though he's like, oh, yeah, I guess there are aliens and spaceships. How does she even get back to the trailer park? Does she take the cop car? Oh, that's a good point. I don't yeah. know. I was, I, that just popped in my head. I was like, yeah, how do they all get back if they only had the one truck? And I was just curious. As, yeah, I didn't know if uh, – I was just hoping Jack Blake had insurance. I don't know if that was going to – I hope so. That was, a nice, that was a nice truck. I liked, that, that it was a nice truck. Accident. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. My truck hit an alien ship. Click. No. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, he doesn't have Jack Burton's uh, insurance. Right. I'm not an act uh, of God. All right. <laughs> any any other uh, Swiss cheese? That's great. That's all I got. And all I'm right. sure there's probably you could probably pick this apart a lot more, but uh, you know, I didn't feel like it. So. No, no, exactly. That's the thing. Love it at heart. So trying to be nice all right so let's move on to our next segment which hey it's that actor so in this segment we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films an actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo so jason who's your hey it's that actor you know gosh it's funny because this particular actor was a child actor at this time and he is credited but most of his scenes, or at least his speaking scenes, were deleted, and he is credited as Lewis's friend. Lewis being Alex's younger brother, who's approximately like 10 years old, and Lewis's friend is played by none other than Will Wheaton. Will Wheaton, who goes on to play Gordy in Stand By Me, and then, of course, is probably most familiar role being that of Wesley Crusher in Star Trek The Next Generation. So Will Wheaton is in this movie. Jason, um, yeah. it, it's so funny because, and this is one thing I do like about 80s movies, because when you're watching the credits, they're not 20 minutes long. They're really right, quick. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm watching the credits, and I'm just kind of like, oh, let's just see who kind of sticks out. And I literally paused the film. No, I, I went back and, and rewound it and then paused it because I was like, Will Wheaton, What? Because I know, I was like, "What? Yeah. What? When the hell was Will Wheaton in this movie?" You know why I the I, I didn't see it in the credits. I noticed it when because I watched this on Amazon and they have the X-ray vision where you pause the movie, all the actors in the scene, their names come up. Oh, okay, their character. 
And it's cool. You get to see like their most recent photo from IMDb next to it too. Uh-huh. It's a cool feature on Amazon. So I paused the movie on that in the, during the finale sequence and there's Will Wheaton. And I'm like, what did that Lewis's friend? Did he? And I'm like, what scenes was he in? Did he ever say anything? And sure enough, they had deleted the scenes that he was in that where he actually spoke. So yeah, so he's if, like in a brief scene in the beginning and then at the end. Where he's yeah, so if you watch the movie in the beginning, when Lewis is walking around the complex, I think, and you'll see a kid in a red um, like football jersey with the number 12 on it, that's mm-hmm. Will Wheaton. Yeah, I had to, I had to go back and, and watch it again just to see where I could find him because I was like, how did I miss him? Because I kept trying to watch the end scene again and couldn't see him. And then I had to go look it up, and then they're like, "Oh no, you'll 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 see him better in the beginning. You you can barely see him in it though, but the way he moves, you can like, oh yeah, that's that's Will Wheaton. That's definitely Will Wheaton. So yeah, that, that was a good that's one. Funny. Yeah, that yeah so that was a jaw dropping moment. Uh, and funny enough, I've actually met Will Wheaton um, two different. Uh, oh really? Two different times. Yeah. Once was at the Black Cow Cafe where I waited tables for many years. Uh, he was a semi-regular customer there and he couldn't have been nicer, just a really nice guy. And, uh, so I met him once there and then I ran into him again at a showing of the Phantom Menace. Oh, no way. Yep. He was going to see the movie. He was standing in front of me in the concessions line and I, I addressed him. I said, Hey man. You probably don't remember me, but I waited on you at the Black Cow, and I just want to say, hey, and same thing. Totally cordial, very amiable guy, just really nice guy. He's like, oh, yeah, hey, man, what's going on? What's it going on, dude? Right, cool, enjoy the movie. Loved yeah. in The Last Starfighter. <laughs> I wish I would have known that. Exactly. That would have been hilarious. Like, oh, yeah, Last Starfighter, that's awesome. The way you ran across the background, amazing. Right. Um, so my Hey, It's That Actor is um her name is suzanne snyder who had an uncredited role as the cheerleader and uh she was the blonde that was always in the truck when everyone's heading to silver lake and she has she has no lines in the movie but um she starred in other 80s films as return of living dead 2 killer clowns from outer space but the role that she might be most known for was her role as deb in weird science who was the object oh of God. Anthony Michaels Hall's affection. So she, no yeah, she's the blonde shit. in the truck. Yep. Yeah. It was weird because that's a great poll, Matt. I would have never guessed that. I would have never noticed. I think only because I remember almost seeing weird science and that movie a long time ago, almost within like the same week. And that's the only way I picked that out that I knew. And then, Watching this again, I'm like, oh, I know there's someone in the truck that I should remember for this. And as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, yeah, that's the girl. Okay, that's it. So, yeah, Suzanne Snyder. And it's it's funny because the fact that even she's not even in the credits. But when you look on IDB, it just says cheerleader for some reason. Like, you don't even know she's a cheerleader. Why do they call her cheerleader? Who knows? It's just it should just be friend in truck. Yeah, yeah, completely. But, you, I, totally you, I mean, you do get some clear shots of her. And you see you definitely see her better than you would see Will Wheaton in this movie. Great. That's great, man. Well done. Um, so moving on to facts and trivia. So what do we have for some facts and trivia for The Last Starfighter? So first of all, there was a subsequent novelization of the film, The Last Starfighter, by Alan Dean Foster. Another Star Wars reference here. 
And that name is burned into my memory because I do still have a copy of Splinter of the Mind's Eye somewhere, the novelization uh, that Alan Dean Foster had written. And previous to that, he was actually the ghostwriter of Star Wars A New Hope, the novelization that George Lucas got credit for. But Alan Dean Foster had actually done the, the novelization. When I see that name, Alan Dean Foster... I think of the Star Wars novelizations. Oh, awesome. Uh, so he had done the novelization for Last Starfighter. Cool. So, uh, yeah. And I think I do uh, somewhere also have a copy of Splinter of the Mind's Eye somewhere. I think in you storage. You know, uh, just not to go on to Star Wars trivia here, but I am. Go for I did it. not realize that Splinter of the Mind's Eye was going to be, was th- there were talks of that to be the sequel to A New Hope, if A New Hope did not do well at the box office. Yeah. I did not know that was even a consideration, but this obviously the hope was an enormous blockbuster and they go on to develop the empire strikes back, which I'm glad they did because that's my favorite film of all time. Yes. <laughs> so a um, couple other things real quick. Uh, the last Starfighter was shot in only 38 days and it was mostly night shoots in Canyon country, which is around Santa Clarita here in Southern California. Uh, we talk about, you know, the computer generated effects for this film. Uh, it was novel. It was a new thing, you know, between this and Tron, uh, which came out the same year. I mean, this was innovation. And uh, so the computer graphics for this film were rendered by Digital Productions, the company Digital Productions on what was a Cray XMP supercomputer. And the company created 27 minutes of effects for the film which was considered an enormous amount of computer-generated imagery at the time. The result was a cost of $14 million for a film that only made about $21 million at the box office. Yeah, And, yeah, Digital Productions was based out here, uh, right outside Culver City. Yeah, they went under pretty quickly, after, unfortunately, after the movie in 1987. And there was a documentary yeah. that actually show a shot of the Digital Productions that actually has the address of the building on it. So I was like, wait a second, I know where that is. And That's sure so cool. enough, yeah, I know crazy. sure enough where digital productions once stand is now a parking garage for the yeah. uh, Metro rail expo line at the La Cienica Jefferson stop. There's a lot of money in parking garages in LA. It certainly is right now. Do you have any, well, uh, you got more fun yes. facts and trivia? Go for it. Yeah. So we were talking about the, um, the dad, um, that's in the picture that Alex shows right. to Griggs. Yeah, this is a good little tidbit. Sure. Yes. Go for it. So the dad is actually uh, cinematographer King Baggett, uh, who worked on the movie, and he was the stand-in. What for, a name! For, yeah, exactly. So he was the stand-in for uh, Alex Rogan's father in the family photo. So I guess he just happened to be there at the time. Like King, come over, you're taking a picture, and yeah, yeah. So he plays. He plays the dad. Did you know there was a musical adaptation adaptation that was first? Produced at the Storm Theater off Off Broadway in New York City in October 2004. I had no idea. How do you make that into a musical? I would, I would pay to see that. That would be interesting. We talk about the video game featured in the film, and it's just you know a real. There's some lore behind that. I mean, it's a subject of discussion, and a real Last Starfighter, uh, the Last Starfighter arcade game by Atari is promised in the end credits of this film, Yep. Uh, but it was never released. If it were released, the game would have been Atari's first 3D poly- polygonal polygonal 
arcade game to use a Motorola 68000 as the CPU. Regardless, eventually there was different iterations of or versions of The Last Starfighter that didn't quite capture the essence of the game we see in the movie. Eventually there was a version that was released under the title Solaris and then another version for the home computer released under the title Star Raiders 2. And then eventually there was a freeware playable version of the game based on what is seen in the film and was released for PC in 2007. This is a faithful reproduction of the arcade game from the film and features full sound effects and music from the game. The creators of this game, Rogue Synapse, have also built a working arcade cabinet of the game. Something to look into. It's like Dave and Buster's. Hey, yeah, invest the money, get the game. I'll be, I'll be, I'll, I'll swipe my card, and you know, you can take twenty three credits to give it a roll. But oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting. For, I'm still it. waiting for yeah a version for it. Oh my goodness, are you kidding? I just think that would just. I mean, I'd be spending all day playing that game. There's got to be someone out there that can come on, guys, make this happen. So we need a Starfighter game. Um, you got you, what else you got for this category? So when they did the first couple screenings of test screenings of the film, people really loved the beta unit role. So they actually went back and filmed some more scenes with it. But unfortunately, Lance Guest was already doing another project and then cut his hair. Right. So he had to wear a wig for some of the scenes. Because if you watch, yeah, the, the, the beta unit hair is a little off. It's kind of, yeah, because I was always like, what's, what's so weird about his hair? I'm like, okay, well, it's oh, a totally, beta yes. but, yeah. But yeah, it's because he had to wear a wig uh, for the film. Right. And he'd also fallen ill. He was Lou Pekin. They had covered him with makeup and everything, which I think actually works. It, exactly. He looks synthetic. Yeah. He has those super smooth skin. It looks uh, like almost like latex, like kind of because he was he'd also fallen ill. So he's got the different haircut and the loads of makeup on, which, again, I think just kind of it, it helped differentiate between the beta version and the human version in the fiction of the movie. You know how I always love ages of actors when they're playing this role. So of course, Alex and Maggie are supposed to be high school seniors. We're guessing. Right. Yeah. Cause they're yeah. going to college. Right. Filming this last guest was 23 and Catherine Mary Stewart was 24. So okay. A little cougar. I would, yeah, cougar I, that sounds there. about right. Yeah. Because I was thinking when I was watching, they they seemed a little bit older, but not too much older. But they was it was they were, you know, believable. I I, I kind of bought it that they were in high school, but they just seemed a little bit older. Yeah, that didn't bother me too much. Yeah. So I've made obviously a lot of Star Wars comparisons and references, and I would be remiss if I don't make some Star Trek references. And in addition to the major Star Trek universe roles later played by the last Starfighter cast members. Will Wheaton, several others in the movie's cast guest starred in various Star Trek franchises. They include Dan Mason, Barbara Dawson, Norman Snow, who played Zur, and Jeffrey Blake. But notable among them is Meg Wiley, who played Granny Gordon, Maggie's grandmother. Meg Wiley, the actress who played one of the Talosian keepers in the original series pilot, Star Trek The Cage. Wow, so that's the one without William Shatner. Right. Damn, yeah. that's cool. So that's for all of you Star Trek fans out there. And I'm one of them. That's all I got for fun facts and trivia. If you uh, got anything else? Yeah, one more. So we got, um, yeah. so there's a little bit of Halloween. Oh, yeah. 
Sure. Going with this because uh, Nick Castle, who the director of the film was in the original Halloween as the shape, basically Michael Myers with the Bill Shatner mask. Right. And Lance Guest was in Halloween 2. Ah. So I think, yeah, so I think it was uh, when Nick Castle was looking, cast in the role for The Last Starfighter, he talked to John Carpenter about uh, Lance Guest, gave him the thumbs up, and that's how he got cast. So there's, yeah, there's a Halloween connection. Makes sense. Very cool. So, yeah, so that's our fun facts and trivia. All right, so moving on to the box office. So this movie opened uh, July 13th, 1984. On a budget of about fifteen million dollars, it ended up grossing twenty-two point two. It debuted at number three during its first week of release, behind Ghostbusters and Gremlins, and was out of the top ten by week three. So, Oof, yes, yeah. this movie would be considered a flop, unfortunately. Moving on to reviews. So, uh, when growing up in the eighties, uh, we used to love to watch at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch some upcoming clips of the movie. Their review for Last Starfighter was split. Um, Gene gave it a thumbs up. Um, He liked the settings, the idea, and the story. While Ebert gave it a thumbs down, not finding it very original, but did like the Alex and Greg relationship. Uh, He didn't think the movie was quite right there. But in a later episode of uh, Siskel and Ebert, Siskel would declare The Last Starfighter as one of his guilty pleasures. So, yeah, so Jim Siskel was a big fan of the film. All right, so let's uh, move on to final thoughts. What do we have for final thoughts? I was just going to make the obvious and direct Star Wars comparisons because I think it, I I always say this, and this is what I have learned, is that if you're going to steal, steal from the best. This film, as mentioned, steals from a lot of of really good, actually, sci-fi, fantasy, space opera type genre films and there's some scenes here one being like with alex having to stay behind he can't go to silver lake with uh his girlfriend and his friends because he's got to stay back behind to fix one of elvira's uh, one of the neighbors electricity and it's very similar to luke having to clean up one of the droids instead of going to tashi station to pick up some power converters it's just the theme of having to being in a stuck in a rut and not being able to go off on an adventure of any kind or play with your friends, but uh, it's describing the lifestyle that they're stuck in. Also, uh, the calling, as I call it, you know, where Alex is looking up at the stars, thinking of a life beyond where he's at. We have Luke in Star Wars staring at the twin sons from Tatooine. I mean, it's the same thing. The role, the mentor role with Centauri versus Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. It's the same character. Both those characters are very short-lived, unfortunately, in both films. Uh, The refusal of the call or the calling where Alex in this film, even two different instances, does not want to go, you know, is either fearful or feels he cannot go on the adventure for whatever reason. Luke does the same thing where he feels he has to stay back on the moisture farm with Uncle uh, Owen and Aunt Beru. But, you know, with the destruction of Rylos in this film and uh, versus in Star Wars, like the murder of Luke's parents, you know, that inciting incident that sends our hero on the hero's journey, you know, it's very similar. I thought this is kind of a funny uh, comparison when I was mentioning Centauri versus Obi-Wan Kenobi in the mentor role is removing an, an enemy's arm. 
<laughs> because oh yeah, Centauri blows blows off the the assassin's arm, and obviously in A New Hope, Obi Wan uses his lightsaber to slice off uh, Ponda Baba, the Walrus Man's uh, arm off. I thought that was kind of a funny, uh, like I mean, it's almost like a direct, you know, reference, right? Oh yeah, exactly. And uh, even with the the Gunstar, the last Starfighter, the, the ship itself, the Gunstar, when they come across a Zurian cargo ship and they have to shoot it down. It's the same thing with Millennium Falcon coming across a rogue starfighter, which, you know, again, must have been lost part of a convoy or something. But then the Gunstar versus the Zurian probe ships, same thing with the Vulcan against the TIE fighters, you know, toward the end of New Hope. So there's just a lot of direct comparisons that I wanted to point out. Yeah, I like the uh, shooting off of the Zando Zan's arm, Chase. That was pretty cool. What's that? Not just because I want you to say Zando Zan again. I, did, I didn't want you to call <laughs> I know. Damn it. I was hoping you were going to call me out on that. Zanzadan. I'm just going to call him Zanzadans. <laughs> Zanzadans. But yeah, uh, I've got, as far as my other final thoughts here, man, one being Lewis, what did the opening shots of the film? We have Lewis, younger brother, running around the trailer park with his suction cup dart gun. Yes. I completely forgot about those things. I had one of those. I've had those. Yes. I love those I think things, I had one of those man. too. Oh my God, trying to get those damn things to stick to the wall. Oh, once you got that to happen, you found a surface. That was amazing. Yeah. It's usually a mirror, which then you would get in trouble because then your mom would see the the damn marks on the mirror. So you'd always oh, get in sure. trouble. It left so like like, a ring. Yeah, exactly. So you'd always That's get in trouble for that. Just a very quotable movie. We talked about, again, Robert Preston and his character being a scalawag and just kind of going through the universe and he's doing, he's trying to do good for Rylos, but he's also in it for the money. He has a great quote where he says, uh, just as he's about to, as we, we think in the movie die, he says, Alex, I want you to know it was for the greatest good. I brought you back. Of course, it never hurts to be rich. Yep. Love that line. My final thoughts is this movie for me personally holds up. You know, if that's a really subjective point of view though, Objectively, it may not, but subjectively, I love the the fantasy adventure aspect of it, and uh, I still relate to it completely. From the video games to uh, saving the universe and getting the girl in the end, I, I still buy it wholeheartedly. And I would recommend this too, to anybody, just to have fun to see, even if you want to just look back at what effects used to be like, and just to kind of put things in perspective as to then and now. That's true. In a good sense of just the history of where yeah. we've come with CGI in movies. This would definitely be a good starting point. You watch this and, and Tron would be yeah, a, a good launching on point. Yeah. I still, I still consider this a pretty much a family film, maybe eight to 12 kind of thing from a first mm-hmm. viewing outside of the, the beta unit incubation shot which yeah that could give you nightmares which wasn't as jarring this time that's that's good you know being in my 40s not being as afraid as i was as a kid but uh outside of no i i I was like i can't wait till my kids get a little bit older to to definitely share this with them so what do you think the deal was with zur and his dad good question you know that lends itself to what i was going to talk about briefly was this again some of the mythology and lore associated with this story which i think is pretty cool because it's so funny how they have to say, like, father. Like, we have to know that this is, Zur is, um, they make it a point. dad. Yeah. Right. So I was like, okay, so what happened? 
what caused Zur to become a traitor and exactly. to, to gather his own followers, which is regarded as a cult by them, by the Rylands. I would love, I would even love to work on a prequel for this because I want to know what happened before this, what led up to this. Like, where do the Kodans come from? Exploring how the frontier itself was developed because it's basically like a, uh, almost as if it was like a magnetic field that protects uh, yeah, like defense, numerous peaceful defense. worlds. Yeah. A fence, right. To divide these peaceful worlds from the outside, which are like warring nations maybe, and including the Kodan Armada. And uh, so that's cool. How did that all come about? And the fact that Earth is unaware of this oncoming menace that is the Kodan and this, this threat that hasn't reached Earth yet. But the Rylands are obviously aware that Earth is close enough that it will become at some point affected by this, this whole situation. And so they're able to reach Earth and thus uh, Centauri placing a recruitment tool on Earth in the form of the Starfighter video game. But yeah, it's all, I love the mythology of it. And, you know, and then at, oh, so back to your original question being, we understand Zur has called himself, he's anointed himself as the emperor of Rylos at this point. However, he still technically is in service to the Kodan emperor. Right. Who is referred to, but never seen. Correct. So there's even like, it's almost like, the, again, another Star Wars reference. It's like, we hear about the Emperor, right? That's in true. Star Wars, but we don't see him. We see a hologram of him in Empire, but he's like this puppeteer pulling the strings behind the scenes, the Wizard of Oz, but we just never, we don't see him. Mm. And that's kind of the same situation here where we have a Kodan Emperor. So we yeah, I don't know. We don't see him, but he does clearly Zur answers to someone. And then Zur escapes at the end. Uh, he gets into escape pod and uh, survives this entire situation, which would lend itself to a sequel because Zur, I'm sure, would come back with a vengeance. All right. Um, I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, please subscribe and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at All 80s Podcast or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Join us again next week as we discuss the 1987 thriller No Way Out, starring Kevin Costner, Sean Young, and Gene Hackman. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for listening, everybody. Good night, world. Mm-hmm.